You're listening to The Razor's Edge. I'm Daniel Schwarzman, co-host of this show, along with Akram's Razor. On The Razor's Edge, we take investing ideas that Akram has been studying as part of his trading or his investing service, also called The Razor's Edge, which builds on his two decades plus as a prop trader and investment researcher. We break down the ideas, the research that goes into them, and what might go right or wrong in the future. We also speak with industry executives and other investors and experts to better understand the opportunities and trends in a given space. And I bring a generalist take based on a decade of investing and reviewing thousands of investing ideas and seeing how they played out during my time at Seeking Alpha. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can also check out Akram's work on The Razor's Edge on Seeking Alpha's Marketplace by searching for The Razor's Edge. If you have a chance to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or to share this with a friend, we really appreciate it. You can also reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman or at Occam's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me respectively or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment or trading advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to a given episode. This week's episode flips the script, at least a little. We start with an idea from my portfolio, F5 Networks. I pitch it to Akram as a software-driven transformational play that is still cheap. His job is to hear me out and poke holes into the thesis. I hope the conversation on F5 itself interests you, but I think you'll get a bigger kick and more value out of the process. And I hope that the insights Akram shares on why an idea can and can't go wrong and where to go for the next phase of research will be as educational to you as they were to me. And, because it's us, we can't avoid talking about the recent SaaS pullback, Alteryx, Tesla, the macro climate, and another long position I have, Dropbox. Before we get started, a quick thank you to Special Karankan for leaving us a nice review on Apple. They titled the review, I Look Forward to This, and called the podcast Fun and Relatable, saying, love that there is also macroeconomic context to all of it. Thank you so much, I think you'll find some of that today as well. Also, thanks to Maximo Odette, who sent us a nice note on Twitter and suggested we do an episode on Akram's investing strategy and overall experience in the market. This isn't quite that, and we recorded this before we got that note, but I hope it gets us in that direction and it's something that we'll look into for future episodes. Okay, disclosures for this episode. I'm Long, FFIV, PagerDuty, Dell, Dropbox, Disney, and Google. Akram is Long, PagerDuty, Twitter, Best Buy, Williams-Sonoma, and Slack. Let's get into it. All right, Akram, we're switching it around this week. This week, I'm pitching you on an idea to, what would you just say? You're, I'm the analyst, your portfolio manager in this case with a new tech idea. Yes, make us some money. Let's go. So software is super sexy right now. We talk about SaaS all the time. It's super expensive. I really still struggle to pay up for stocks. I've got one of your growthy names in my portfolio, but the rest of it's a little much. But I Who, found which one? I've got PagerDuty. I do have Okay. Page- I mean, PagerDuty right now is not considered sexy. It's like, what is it? Six times, seven times sales? 
I think it's a whatever. Sorry, I think it's a little more. little higher, but yeah, yeah. Re- regardless, it's more than I normally pay. So you actually don't like paying for multiples of revenue. I'm. I gotta say, I'm a free cash flow guy. Earnings. <laughs> I'm very. We're recording this on a day where the market is having one of those rotation to value days, and that is working out well for the portfolio. So anyway, you got to dig a little bit deeper to find a software company that's growing fast, but isn't super expensive. This isn't quite that, but I think it's it's got something to it. And here's the story. It's a legacy hardware company, but it's transitioning. People have heard that story before. This company has, po- has had software be 15% of its revenue for a long time. But in the last three years, new CEO... They've bought a couple companies to help accelerate their growth. They put up 50% year-over-year growth last year. All right, wait, wait. First question, first question, first question. I'm always curious of this. What put this particular name on your radar before this started gestating into that? We're starting out here where the software is hot, and you're looking for an angle. You're looking for a relative value angle in the space. Which, by the way, let me warn you, is always a recipe for disaster. But <laughs> because you're always better off going to the, the cool best. table, yeah. going for the cool table, putting your money down with, with the three coolest kids. If you're, if you're looking for that, then trying to, what's it called? Can't buy me love it. Take, take the nerd and turn him into the cool table. So, I, hear but, I hear what you're saying. But I am curious as to... Well, I mean, I've, I've traded F5 maybe several times over the last decade. Nothing in the last maybe two years, but or maybe once on an earnings. I don't know. But obviously, I'm familiar with it. But I'm, I'm curious as to why would someone like you be looking at, like, uh, how did F5 come into the mix? Yeah, good question. And I don't remember exactly when I opened the position. It was sometime last year. I think the reason I brought it to you is because as we've been spending so much time talking software, and as I've, since leaving Seeking Alpha a little over a month ago, I've been restudying my portfolio, and I kind of looked at this, re-underwrote it, as they say, and then it sold off after earnings, and so I thought it was interesting. Why it popped up on my radar, I think, was probably two or three things. So from a portfolio perspective, I think I'm underweight tech, which is not not trying to have some platonic value for how much tech I have on my portfolio, but it's obviously an important sector. And I just felt like I wasn't spending enough time there. I'm still looking for stocks that trade on reasonable cash flow multiples, as I mentioned. F5 trades at something like 15 times trailing free cash flow, a little bit less actually, I think. So that's something where, okay, that seems pretty reasonable to me. Probably read a couple write-ups here and there, and so it was interesting enough to look into. And I think when I kind of studied the setup, and I think at least the case, I don't know if this is what brought me there, but the case I would make now is that in this market, it's a good point. Relative value, I mean, come on, there's a reason that stocks trade differently. And if a sector is hot, you may as well ride the big winners. And if it's not hot, there are other things that are going to hurt you. You can't just go for the cheapest PE. You can't like basic screening doesn't work. So finding transformations where the market isn't assigning credit 
to something and somebody has a reputation for something and it's you think that reputation is going to change. I think that's the story I want to tell. I don't know if that's what brought me to F5 originally, but I think it is. All now. right. All right. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I get it. Fair enough. So continue. So F5 Networks is the company and it's legacy application delivery controller, which they would sell as hardware. The way I understand it, it's basically a piece of hardware that they apply onto in-house servers to help you manage server load. If you're trying to launch a new website or a new app and you're trying to get millions of people or thousands of people, whatever, you need to balance the load. You need to make sure that it stays up online. The website stays up. Their hardware would provide that. Obviously, as people move to the cloud, hardware for private servers is not super useful. So they needed to adapt to that. And they had a longtime CEO who tried to leave in 2015. I think the new CEO, there were some issues. So that CEO left. CEO finally stepped down in 2017. They brought somebody else on. And you can see starting in 2018, even in 2018, there's still product revenue. Their business is two parts. It's product revenue and services revenue. Services is actually the bigger piece of the puzzle. I think it's still 56% or so. Product revenue is what they're hoping to grow is I think the stir that the straw that stirs the drink for them. And if they can grow software sales instead of relying on hardware sales. And so in 2018, you start to see the transition where in the first quarter or two, that product revenue was declining year over year. And then it starts to turn a corner in the middle of 2018. From that focus, they then buy a couple of companies. Engine X and Shape Security. And so they're building out this software. It's not all subscription business. The recurring revenue on the last call, they said was 73%, but they're building out this software solution to replace and their hardware solution. They were a leader in the hardware space, so they have a good reputation. They were increasingly, I think, viewed by the market as stodgy, as kind of not, not changing, not growing. They weren't super cheap, but they weren't... Nice margins. I mean, look, ADCs sit between the server and the firewall. Load balancing, generally, the core functionality. I I don't really know, speaking the lingo of tech, as far as like what exactly the load balancing is doing behind the scenes. But I mean, I I think it's like, you know, you're accelerating applications and, and you're optimizing the performance for the user. I don't know what that exactly involves, but I mean, like, that's that's how I've understood it in the past. We used to look at this, like, if you're looking here, I mean, we would look at, I remember when Acme Packet was big, which I nailed before it actually got acquired, which was a f- funny, f- funny story back then, but they did session border controllers. Your competition here has actually really always been Citrix. So it's been kind of like, it's a two-tier market really between when you, you would look at networking stocks, you would look at Cisco, Juniper, F5, and Citrix systems. And on, on Citrix and F5, you would be focused on the application delivery controller market. The other two largely non-existent in that space. So, like, you know, I don't know how much you paid attention to networking, but it's been a horrible sector. And yes, you're right. Not much has been going on there. 
no one really gets excited about it. And virtualization and the transition to the cloud, you know, you, you see stuff more like people going crazy over Fastly recently as uh, an edge infrastructure, because this is kind of, this is sitting uh, more so on the edge and on, on the inside between the server and the firewall and whether it's virtual or physical. And the, the NGIX acquisition is essentially buying the open source leader and, and trying to plow into that. Like, you know, it's a full on commitment by, by F5. But I mean, F5 was a cash cow. You have a nice services revenue that feeds off that hardware. So it was, you know, a 40%, thir- high 30% margin business that has stopped really growing revenue. And they've done some acquisitions and margins have come down and like, you know, they're in this kind of new, new, Nutanix type of transformation where, like you said, you've walked into here and you're like, I'm, I'm getting into this for the growing software business. Let's, and I'm, I'm you know, reading your, your write up that you sent me, like taking, like you're, you're stripping out that software piece and be like, what's this worth? And you're almost doing that like reverse some of the parts where we decompose like the, the, the spinoff of like, hey, there's a 50, 60% software business growing inside this declining hardware business. And at what point do we inflect where the total business starts to grow? Yeah, essentially, that's well put. And I think it's obviously I'm being a little bit coy as far as I, what I did and I will try to post the write-up on Seeking Alpha when we publish this podcast. But I compared it to other companies with 200 to $400 million in revenue, which is where their software business is. And you know, if you look at that, they're growing faster. Of course, it's somewhat non-organic because they're acquiring. And also, like I said, it's not all subscriptions. I don't really have a full sense that it's the equivalent to the sort of revenue that Rapid7 is getting or 5.9 or whatever. But yeah, it just feels like it's already 38% of product revenue, their software revenue, and their growth rates bottomed in 2018 at about 3.4%. I have the numbers in front of me. And they're now up in the 5%. Like you can just see them grinding higher. The question there is, as you said, the margins have come down. But I think... We talk so much about take Netflix and how they had to deal with these other companies. We talk so much about companies that have to change are facing that innovator's dilemma where they have a cash cow business. F5 seems to finally be changing is what my argument is. And I don't think, I don't think the market has got into that yet. I thought the, as it, not that I get hyped up about earnings calls, but the most recent earnings call, they beat, they raised. Their guidance wasn't huge, but it was a very solid beat. And the stock had risen because of a couple upgrades, target price increases, etc. And it sold off something like 5 to 10% because people thought it got ahead of itself. But it's like, we're still talking, as I said, 15 times free cash flow. It's not exactly going crazy. So I just think that there's when you're trying to, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the risk, and maybe that's what you're implying here, is that it's still just in a boring space, right? And even if they go to software, it's like, even security is not very exciting, right? For security, you have your big winners, but security is still a tough sector to actually 
you know, I, I don't know. What what do you? I mean, what do you make? Security is a, is a very tough sector. I would say that the hardest thing for me here is having an understanding of what the hell is going on behind the scenes as far as product market fit, let's say, and who's using what, what's changed. And like that's kind of something where we've looked at this scenario with, I mean, I've looked at physical pager companies. I've looked at eFacts and versus Documentum. It's like who has to evolve in, in, in what we've seen recently with observabil- observability and, and, and application performance monitoring with New Relic what's been going on with Datadog and like whether that's pricing. And then like recently you had uh, Alteryx with their announcement with, with earnings and, you know, the argument that it's not necessarily a SaaS that's persisted since the end of last year. And you look at it as maybe it's like, you know, maybe this is a bridge to solution to a native cloud world. So I guess the question I have is what is the role of the ADC in, in let's say like a, a major corporate infrastructure environment? You know, in uh, an AWS Azure world, like what what's been lost? I haven't explored that, so I don't. I really don't know much. I haven't talked to like network engineers or who's managing these these pieces of hardware or these virtual virtual load balancing networks. So I think that would be my that would be where I, I would spend some energy because yeah, okay, so F five is the leader, but it's like, what are you the leader in? It has this TAM shrunk or expanded, like we were talking about with Captain Twilio, where he's like, you know, Zoom phone is better than Avaya, and it's one-tenth the cost. And it's like, all right, well, then Zoom phone's TAM is one-tenth Avaya's in theory, right? If you're actually not growing into, like, let's say, more office seats uh, on planet Earth by expanding it in, in, in some greenfield manner. If you look at an F5 and you say, all right, well... What's this like, you know, cloud native shift to software away from hardware doing to the overall revenue picture? Like, is this a company that is facing persistent revenue declines for several more years? Like, how does the transition work? It's like, it's the same conversation. You know, I've been sucked into this whole thing. You think I'm a Netflix bull and a Disney bear now on Twitter, where I I defend Netflix's position and all this crap. And, And I'm not really defending Netflix. I'm just like being like, look, what's Disney trading? Disney was the king of the old model. So like when people talk about, well, Disney got 60 million subscribers really quickly and it took Netflix this many years. It's like, I mean, Disney, already, everybody on planet Earth already consumes Disney. If I go back 10 years ago, there's a significant percentage of the whole planet who'd never even heard of Netflix. Nobody had not heard of Disney. So my point is Disney is this like giant machine where they release everything and they, they have all these layers of making money and whatever. So you erode that and you replace it with, Disney Plus, fine. What's the trade-off? Like you were making good, but you had different margin profiles for every single release. So when you look at F5, I mean, I noticed one of the questions on the call was like your margins were here. Now they're like, you know, in, in the high 20s when you're getting back and you highlighted that in your report and say, as, as something for the analyst to be focused on. And like those are things where you're going to spend three months on a business like this and to really, really, or somebody's done exceptional work who you trust, and you can just read a report where he where he explains all the nitty gritty of what's going on behind the scenes. Who's replacing this with what? What are they using? How does this change the profile of the business? Because internally, I'm sure they have a very good idea of that, and they have a plan of, of action. But like, is this something like how long does it take for this to organically grow? Or are we looking at you know acquisition here, acquisition there? 
Uh, perfect example of, of, of a place where everyone's been tortured is Juniper. And I mean, there's reasons for that in, in, in core routing and, and telcos not spending money like they used to and, and, and consolidation and, and whatever's happened as far as the switches business, which they dominate. But there's been different fits and spurts where like, you know, they would do this in security and you'd get excited and then it didn't work. And then they had this like new, I don't remember what it was called, like the wavelength or whatever router that was supposed to be like fiber optic change everything. And that flopped. I think an easier thing to do when looking at a business like this is kind of understand the transition to software. And like they bought an open source leader. So it's like, you know, commercial open source as a service type of approach is what they're doing software, software wise. What are they competing against? That's what I don't understand. Yeah, I think that's the core question, right? Because I think a lot of good stuff you brought up there and a lot of sort of embedded concerns there, margins and everything else. And what are they competing against? I, I, I'm still trying to figure out my sense is they're competing against Amazon and as like they're competing against whatever the core cloud service providers are providing as solutions for these sorts of problems. And I think F5, by the way, is based in Seattle. They will press release collaborations with VMware from time to time. I feel like they've got some sort of, I'm sure they have AWS collaborations, but that doesn't really change the picture. Because the the core need, I don't see why the, the this solution that F5 is offering is to help you scale your website or your application, I presume that need is going to grow over time. Whether or not they have the best solution, the end market of, oh, I need to deliver something to millions of people, I think over the internet, I think will grow. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's legacy hardware type companies. I think Radware is a company that's in there, etc. But yeah, I don't know. My sense is that it's probably these more agile software oriented companies what i tried to do i know and maybe i will get to do in primary source research i think that's something you do really well what i've been trying to do to provide secondary source research to compare to that is to first of all their their overall revenue has never declined in an annual basis they are obviously have acquired a couple firms and they spent over a billion dollars on those firms and they have that services business, which kind of product revenue has dipped negative, but has been positive for a while in the last four quarters. I mean, the service business is the ADC appliance business. Uh, it's, it, it's a component of selling hardware. But yeah. I think there's some software component to it. I got a sense. I forget where it was. One of the calls they disclosed that Nginx was not – Nginx was – may have been acquired pre-revenue or was very low revenue when they bought them, but they mentioned that there's some service application. Getting aside consulting, professional services, et cetera, you're you're, you're essentially talking also about, I don't know what the the mix is, but it's software and support that goes with the appliance that you're buying contract-wise when you buy the hardware. You haven't abstracted the hardware completely away, you know, as you do when you completely virtualize something. But there's a software element to anything. Like you have software to run to run the application, which you're paying for. 
and eventually it's just getting re removing the 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 actual physical hardware completely. You still should look at that as part of the legacy business of the product. Yeah, and that's for all that I talk about the software. It's still, I think, overall something like maybe fifteen percent total revenue because I provided the product revenue percentage. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing about on-prem. Obviously, when Larry Ellison used to make fun of on-prem, he used to talk uh, SaaS. Sorry, he would just be like, "Look, yeah, we have this thing called maintenance and support, which is like typically twenty percent of the license, a new license sale. When you'd buy something, you'd contract for three years of that." Oracle's business model and SAP's has been buying software companies with install bases and raising the maintenance and support annual take rate over 20%. Like, I mean, that shit started out in like the 15% range. And I think that in some cases it's been as high as 22%. So like that's a subscription, that's a recurring revenue business. And that's essentially what you're buying when you buy a, a, a legacy software company. Cause it'll be like, Hey, we'll buy this and we'll drain the cash flow. So it's, and that's when Larry Ellison says that SaaS is just another way of naming that. That's what he's getting at. Instead of instead of structuring a big upfront purchase and then this smaller recovery. Yeah, he's, revenue he, he's saying that the, the like the, the, the argument used to be that when you sell a new license, you discount initially for like you know the software upgrade, and then you have another component which is the maintenance, maintenance and support. And it's saying that SaaS is the exact opposite. You're flipping the equation around where you discount extremely aggressively on the year one, let's say, subscription and spend heavily to acquire the customer. And then the price works its way up uh, in, in the out years if you can get them to commit to a longer longer cycle, like three years, for example. So yeah, so that understanding those, the components there and understanding the business environment, those are, or sort of the competitive environment, I think those are the biggest weaknesses in my thesis right now in terms of I don't understand it well enough. I tried to surmise. I looked at Gartner product reviews, get a sense, and F5 and Nginx are all kind of in the four and a half to five star range. F5's Glassdoor ratings are trending higher. They're not sterling, but giving you a sense. I get the sense from reading comments both on Glassdoor, Seeking Alpha, wherever else, that there's definitely a cultural shift that needs to take place from the legacy hardware to a more software first company. So that's sort of an internal thing to watch for. Yeah. And I'm just, I, I guess the, t the two directions that I think this goes wrong are one that ultimately that competitive space, I don't, I don't understand. And they just kind of, maybe they grind at 3% year over year growth, but it's not very exciting. The other one is the margins component as far as they're still producing free cash flow quite nicely, but their operating margin, the most recent quarter was only 15%. And it usually is. I think it's 40% is probably non-gap, but it's like 28 to 30% gap. And they have, I, you know, you look at their proxy and they're graded by management's graded by revenue and by EBITDA. And I think they adjust for acquisition expenses. So there's like a lot of room to play around with just acquiring for growth. So those those are sort of the two threads here is the competitive space, how to get a sense of that. And I think your 
figuring out a way to, whether it's get on the phone with network engineers. I can say I do remember us using Nginx at some point at Seeking Alpha, but I don't think we were using it when I left. I think, I'm not sure. I I suspect we switched ultimately to AWS. I mean, we switched a while ago to AWS, but I suspect that somewhere along the way, AWS and a number of other software tools we were using covered the Nginx need. But I guess that's the biggest component. And then also, as they try to fight against that competitive, I think that's really the biggest one. If they have a growing space and they actually have a competitive advantage, I think the margins probably straighten out. If they don't, then there's the risk that they acquire rashly and struggle. Yeah, I think the challenge when doing something like this is that we often try to do kind of what what it is you're doing, which is look at a theme in the market and come up with, uh, let's say, a backdoor way to exploit it versus saying, hey, F5 has all these customers that are on this and they will have to transition to this because this is a better product and they need it. That's like a, a market demand driven thesis. and that's typically what you see in let's call in growth investing. So, if I was to poke holes here, right, I'd say that what you haven't been able to articulate to me, I guess, yet is what's the secular demand driver that they're taking advantage of here? Well, why why do I really give a shit if you're taking a hardware software mix and recl- and you know bringing it into the craze world of all software where you get a higher multiple? So. Uh, if that's what's going on behind the scenes, or is there a reason that whatever you, whatever it is you are doing has now a huge tailwind from an end market demand standpoint and that you have now architected to do, and you can exploit that with your customers and be like, Hey, we've been doing this for you. Now you need to upgrade to this. And like, that's where you see these occasional shifts. Like when you get, when people get excited about a Nutanix or whatever, where it's like, you know, we're completely exiting this and everyone's adopting our software for that. And you have these like little fits and spurts. But if, if you're not starting at that point and being like, there's something secularly appealing going on here and you're working yourself backwards, you're essentially just trying to talk yourself into, all right, there's a software business that's here. This is a leader. It's going to grow. This is growing. And I'm paying a low multiple, and and eventually that this this should just work out as they move to the cloud because they're essentially outdated. What if it's just a structural problem where you exist in the food chain has been something that like you were able to tax before within an IT department that really needed you, and there was a person who managed your hardware and ran it, and that's now been outsourced, and that's something that has been subsumed within the core functionality that a cloud provider is delivering, at which point your ability to charge a premium and extract that layer in the IT food chain has been eroded and you're not an attractive place to be. That I don't know. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I, it, because I if, do, you looked, if, if you looked five years ago or even 10 years ago, you knew what these companies were and where they sat. Like people were excited about this. You needed to have these ADCs because web traffic is going up and it's taxing the corporate networks and sitting between the firewall and between the application. That was a theme. Now, I, I don't necessarily know if that's a theme. I like Citrix, for example, story, you know, Citrix is one of those names that in this run in the market has benefited from work from home. 
They have right? go-to meeting, yeah. Yes, and they have desktop as a service. It's been it's been one of these like you know virtualization plays where you you know you can spin off a virtual desktop for your employees you know as they're sitting at home. That's a different story. That's one where you say okay they have a demand driver that's working in their favor. Well, you know we've seen it with Zscaler and, and Endpoint and and like I mean there's a there's a few of these players in security where it's also like it's just kind of been like hey they're sitting at a pain point that that covid basically exploited the, i i don't i don't really know what like even going through the most recent conference call what exactly f5 is sitting at that enterprises need and like it's just a company where i look at it today and i'm like this environment with the way sales are being done and the challenges and the longer sales cycles and and the size of deals that they've traditionally done like it's hard to it's hard to get excited about it in this in this window. So I do feel like there's a little bit of a, not stylistic tension, but I, maybe this is, and maybe this is where value investing gets it wrong too. But like, does the multiple does lower the bar here? They don't need to, we mentioned pager duty earlier, which is what are they supposed to grow? 33% revenue this year or something like that. Uh, like 20, I think their guidance is 28, 29. Okay. I don't want to raise the bar on them. Uh, and they do serve a new need, et cetera. And so I totally, I get that. But the fact that there's a lower multiple here in theory, and that's where what I've, the big thing I've tried to add to my. Yeah, but everybody who has a lower multiple in that category has it for a reason. Remember, I mean, we started with pager duty. It's, you can, if I want to hit it with, uh, you know, bearish arguments, it's a point product. They're charging too much. It'll be eroded. There's Slack. It's got, you know, there's Microsoft out there. Fastly, you'll, you'll have other CDN competition will come in and that like what's going on at the edge right now with the way you price is going to come under pressure. Like Datadog, same thing. New Relic is forced to respond and they're going to, they're going to freemium. Every single one of these, you can sit and you can poke with, well, as soon as they start underperforming, like Alteryx, for example, has dropped 40%. We were joking about this since it reported. Alteryx, had, there, there have been short reports on it at the end of last year when it was trading right around where it is today that were essentially that like this slows down to low teens revenue growth next year because of the way their mix is between ratable and subscription. There's accounting classifications on on when they recognize revenue that have benefited them in the, in, in the last 18 months that now you know change uh, particularly i think with what is it 606 right so, yeah uh, codes asc asc 606 so i'd read that and i mean you don't get excited about a, a classification it's like the argument there is it's pseudo SaaS. you're really an on-prem company and you're getting that benefit of the upfront new license sale, and uh, you're being valued like a subscription revenue SaaS, which is not going to be the case. So they did that. They made that argument. Then they had other competitive issues arguments. These guys, when they reported last quarter, they told you, you know, we're going to grow like 14, 15%. And there was like a bunch of people who seemed to be like in denial that that's the case. And they're like, yeah, they're just guiding conservatively. Anyway, they came out and you know they did like 16% revenue growth or whatever, and they're, they're telling you they're going to do like 10% for the year. 
and all the stuff that you typically fault a company for, which was had already started happening in terms of deferred revenue and billings and, and all this. That was all there as far as leading indicators on the fact that actual revenue growth is going to be materially slower this year. Well, this stock was trading at 25 times sales. So who pays 25 times sales for a company that's going to grow 10% this year? Nobody. But like, what caused it to fall 40% on something that was so obvious? Maybe like uh, their commentary about the macro environment being more difficult and the fact that they're selling more adoptive licenses, which are much shorter duration of six months and kind of payment term flexibility spooked some people. But you could also just argue that it was getting an, an inaccurate multiple relative to where it was. Or you could argue that this is the first sign that like this bearish criticism that in a cloud native world, like a lot of people have just basically been like, look, as long as you have on-prem, you, you, you're still going to have you know robust Alteric sales. And the one criticism was that if your data warehouse moves to cloud native, like Snowflake from Teradata, right, you need to buy less Alteric licenses because the cleaning and ingesting of the data is done differently and so on and so forth. I don't know. I, I never really got into it. But it was an interesting thing that was highlighted that caught my attention at the end of last year. And I'm like, look, if this guy's right, these guys were at the right place at the right time, just done the work, and this is what people are telling him, Alteryx is very expensive per license. And if I need less licenses, then I've shrunk my TAM. And that's when you start getting these, that's when these stocks hit narrative resets. So when you walk into, let's say, software, and you say, I'm, I'm going to look at what is attractively priced. Like Juniper trades at like one and a half times revenue or something. And F5 has always gotten a really nice healthy multiple because it generates healthy cash flow. Now you're kind of going in that other direction. Like, are we trading out this very lucrative cash generation from services to this newer ADC as a service? essentially speaking, virtual host, load balancing, cloud provider. I, I, I have no idea. But like it's, what was really nice about this business is that you had a, a really large services business that, like, that had, had grown around the physical appliance infrastructure that they'd been selling in all these years. That's where the cash flow comes from. So when you get to this really nice free cash flow multiple, it's reflecting this legacy install-based environment. So the question is, is shifting them to virtual really doing anything notable because all you were really were doing before like like the, the swap needs to be more uh, like generating more revenue and more profitability and that's really something where it's a question of pain point and i just feel like this is something where it's like at my basic understanding from a, from a, from an information technology standpoint it'd be good to get an expert on here where they, like you're just be, you're a middleman who's being cut out right which is where if the cloud service provider is able to solve this problem or whatever. Because F5's heyday is back in a time, for example, where Blue Box is still around. And I don't know everything about Blue Box. I know we used to use them as servers, and I know that Amazon replaced them. And I think maybe that's where you go to public cloud more fully. But, and, you know, and just talking, you can tell and are being kind about it. I'm sure listeners can tell there's a lot I still need to learn. The thing that interests me here, the thing that I try to do, and I don't know if it's right, it's easier to do with like super small caps where I do think there are actual small caps out there that you can find a value play that actually 
is just mispriced and it's dumb. And this is more of a mid-cap. It's a company, by the way, that as we're talking, it's grown It's since January 1st, 2011. It's grown trailing 12-month revenue 142%, and the stock price is up about 7%. So it's really been just a flat decade almost for this stock. I, I had put in my notes that it was a flat few years, but it's really been flat for a long time. It feels like in the COVID period, everything was make sure there's a good balance sheet. And obviously, we're still in COVID more widely, but in the markets, it feels like with the Fed and everything else, people are less worried about balance sheets. But it feels like they have the optionality just on the numbers. They do, they're not starting from 25 times sales, and they have cash to acquire as needed, and they have cash generation, and they're starting to rev up growth. That's sort of the nutshell. But I think what you're pointing out is don't assume that just because the numbers are what they are, on the one hand, if you're right about the customer need, like you said, and if they actually can package something then really what should change the story here is that one quarter, instead of providing guidance or a beat that is around 5% year-over-year revenue growth, all of a sudden they have a 10% quarter. Either guidance or they just report a 10% growth quarter without like, and it's not just acquisition, it's a legit growth. So that's what, so understanding that, I think that's, yeah, I, I guess that's that's sort of the upside it, the downside is, yeah, they kind of keep grinding along. So you would go, like when you're getting into a stock that you really want to take seriously, and listeners, I don't, I'll disclose in my article, I don't think I've disclosed on this. This is right now my largest stock position. Like your next steps would be, let's go try to find people who are actually customers, understand their use case, understand where this fits in exactly. their technology stack. 100%. Particularly if it's your largest, Daniel, what are you doing? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there is a difference between somebody who is a experienced as an editor and a hobbyist, not hobby investor, I invest, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different approach uh, versus a professional. So like, I think it might be interesting for me, but also for listeners, like what what does that mean? Are you scouring LinkedIn? Are you looking at their 10K for customers and going from there? Or like, how do you... Are you asking me to give the keys to the kingdom? <laughs> Whatever you're willing to disclose, your your highness over there. But no, I mean, like, what's the... You don't have to give away secrets, but like, what's the general... When you say this, are you I just... I mean, it's so easy today. You can sit on... You know, I'm looking at some people just responding on stuff on Twitter as far as... Alteryx and you know you got data engineers and whatever popping up. Yeah, I, I I would talk to I would talk to customers, people who are responsible for this for the product. LinkedIn used to be, in my opinion, the best place to start. Uh, Hacker News, Reddit, the, these are good places. There's new products attempting to to, to fill in. We've discussed this where you, you talk to people who work at companies and, but I think networking these days is the uh, is the easiest thing ever. I mean, that's maybe uh, you just have to. I mean, you can you can set up expert calls. It's not True. very complicated, right? True. So, if you're really serious, uh, you've got you've got the the networks there that will go get the person for you in the space, pay them for their time. But I mean, people are just so apt to to talk about what they do and give away give away information there that there's just so many ways to uh, swoop it up. 
But yeah, I would, I would talk to customers. I would talk to former sales reps. That's like, I mean, understand what their story was, what they were. Yeah, you work there. You you are. How are you selling this? What's your pitch? You know, what are you trying to do with the customer? What's the directive internally? Are you working through your install base? Uh, Who's doing what? What are the needs that are driving things? How's COVID impacted things? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I think today, like, that's not a hard thing to do. Whenever I've flipped a short, like, that's. Start out a short with, you know, with the thesis, which involves sometimes I've discovered something or something or ideas just occurred to me or something is just logically makes no sense or I'm just used to things from the market. And then you go talk to people and like they'll either confirm it or essentially throw like a you know, mixed water on it and sometimes to completely refute it when you go out there and, and you check it out. And and sometimes things change fast enough, but like we've gone through that like discussion with, with Slack and PagerDuty, but it's not like those concerns have, have gone away. I mean, like, I don't think Slack's getting away from the Microsoft uh, issue anytime soon. We even, you know, we had Scott, you right. know, mention Teams and, you know, obviously I wasn't super enthused about that, <laughs> even though he said video, but these things don't end. So I think when, when, you, when you come in value shopping, the danger is that you go nowhere more often than not with an F5, for example. But like, there's also there's always also a risk that uh, what they're doing is not working, and you you've walked into a trap. I mean, like some of these companies are going to have much harder, you know, like let's call it uh, a very challenging future because there isn't enough room for everybody and everything. Right. So if you're being cut out and you're trying to you're trying to rejigger yourself for the future th- th- that can be a challenge and that's where like you know you you want to buy something because you believe that there's a secular demand driver that's that's behind it like so like what you basically said i can you know i think application and big data i mean like this that like i can show you stuff from the 1960s where like that's we're going to have demand for this and it's going to continue robustly for forever. Like we, we're always like people are always arguing that that's the case. So you got to sit there and say like, you know, what exactly? We, we know what people are excited about when they talk about Twilio and and Fastly, for example, particularly in today's COVID land. But that's 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 an end market demand story. Like people expect the TAM to be the, the TAM is massive, and the usage tied to you know you know telephony and live streaming and whatever is huge and they're benefiting from it so it's a secular story like that's the question here like what's the secular story here like you kind of you know you're talking talking adc and you're talking cybersecurity in a very in very generalized terms and understanding uh, what exactly uh, why if you come on here and be like here are the top two reasons Akram, you should be excited and neither of them should be valuation. Right. And I think that's that ultimately is where value investing has had to shift and had to improve and has struggled. Uh, whether it's David Einhorn getting stuff, having a tough decade or whatever else. I feel like that's, and I love, or I'm a fan of David Einhorn's work, but that's just an easy example of value. Yeah, I think that's, I don't have 
the the one thing I will say, not in defense of the thesis, as it were, is that I do ascribe something of a and this is a very trivial check mark, but the fact that they're growing revenue means that there's some there's something is working, whether that is and it's not all acquisition. So something is there is some demand for their services, whether it's sustainable, whether it's lower margin, all that stuff. Like there's still lots of questions posed here, but that is one of the things I've really tried to prioritize as far as avoiding value traps. I feel like most of my value traps have been yield traps as well is where I've gotten caught most. But I hear you. And I think this is a good a good Look, I think with these with, with names like this, as long as you don't as long as you don't take a big hit, you're doing a good job. If you, if you can I mean it's nice to nail the the one that uh the caterpillar that turns into the butterfly. Mm-hmm. But as long as you don't get murdered. As long as the caterpillar doesn't get eaten by a yeah, essentially. Who, who eats caterpillars? Frogs? Uh, um, I'm sure just about anything in the in, <laughs> in the insect kingdom. Uh, a lot of reptiles out there. The well, and that's you know one another name we've sort of tweeted about a little bit and texted about is Dropbox. Dropbox, I think there's is a different story in a lot of ways, but it's a similar attraction for me in the sense of. There, I understand the story a little better, and I also understand the risks. I understand that a lot of people can just go to Google Drive or whatever. Like, are they really going to go to Dropbox for everything? Uh, I know we've talked and you've started to use their services more. I just started using their Dropbox paper this week and was really, so far, pretty impressed with it. But it's something where it's not the same because they're still growing double digits, etc., but when you have a good balance sheet, which, by the way, all, all these growth names have great balance sheets too, so it's not that's not a big deal. But and you have a reasonable multiple, and you can understand where they might go and how this might catch people's attention. And I'm not our followers who have stuck with us this long, the people who are returning a hundred percent in a year or whatever else, you know, all the all the SaaS names we talk about. Like I'm generally looking for where's a stock that I think can be worth at least 50% more. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm retesting and re-exploring that style and trying to keep it up to date while still being comfortable for the way I think about the markets. I mean, look, the Dropbox is an interesting one. I I shorted it last summer, obviously. Uh, Stock got up to almost 27. It was like, rallying at the at the end of the what do you want to call it SAS rally you're talking about last summer or this year no no last sum, last summer yeah like right before the yeah, SAS crash yes yeah, so i published a short thesis on it i shorted it and in 3 weeks it fell 30% and uh, they had they had just introduced new pricing a lot of people have been complaining about it they they launched the new dropbox collaboration uh, tool for the future so but let, let, let me just jump in there for a second because i think that's my understanding is your thesis was right i mean you obviously worked short term and there was a lot of consternation about dropbox but paying users growth has been fine they don't actually disclose retention numbers but 
it doesn't seem like the churn really hit them that hard, right? Like that, they kind of, I also don't think new Dropbox has been a huge boost for them, but it seems like that wasn't a major event for the company, like in turn or for the stock. Is that? I mean, look, th- this whole thing was interesting because we were shorting Slack. The, there's a narrative around Slack. I, I don't remember who it was who worked at Social Capital who'd, who'd written something in, uh, you know, 2016 or 15 or whatever it was that Dropbox was like the most celebrated unicorn, the Decacorn. Sorry, first Decacorn, and got an into the uh, the argument that. That so much has gone wrong with Dropbox that really has been subsumed by Slack, right? His like bearish argument on on Dropbox being the first decacorn to fall was that Slack is the issue, and Dropbox has done all these acquisitions and things and fits and starts over the years. They've tried all these little markets, so it's not like they didn't try to get into chat. It's not like they didn't try to be, essentially become a collaboration platform. They've experimented. There's that, that whole concept of how, how do you get into Microsoft's office space that a lot of these guys have worked on over, over the years. Now, my short thesis, yeah, had been that you don't pay, it had gotten up to a, a pretty high multiple, and they've generally been driven by uh, pricing increases, first on the business side, and then they bought, uh, as they bought HelloSign. But now they were doing uh, consumer-based price increases, which we're not sitting very well with the consumer and you are coming into a point where you're like, all right, like what's the value proposition there? And when I fast forwarded, let's call it several months later, I just kind of felt like there was all, there's always an element with these things. And we've done this with PagerDuty where it's like, how sticky is it? People make a fuss, they do all this and then they don't cancel. And like, there's an element with Dropbox where it's just like, you're kind of just kind of used to your files being where they're at and it's just easy. And it's got brand identity. And overcoming those things can be very difficult. And that's when you look at it and be like, all right, I mean, like, what's it close to now? Like a $2 billion uh, revenue business? 1.9 is, I think, the high end of guidance for this year. So, yeah, so like that's kind of where you're at. Uh, Precious Point did a short thesis on it, which I thought was poorly timed. And he's like, oh, Spruce Point, I think, was the one. Okay, yeah, Precious Point. Uh, Spruce Point, yeah, Ben, Ben, sorry. So he'd done a short thesis on it, and I was just of the view that kind of when the stock was like 16, and it's like, this is going to 10. And you're like, all right, I mean, if it's going to 10, like what is going to happen immediately that would cause that, particularly when an activist screams fire? And well, what, are, like, what have you pointed out that's kind of new here? And it's just like, there was like nothing. You're, there was the arguments on free cash flow being overstated which I think anyone is familiar with on how it works as far as their business model. So when you compare it to other SaaS names, yeah, you, you get that it's not sexy and you get that like you're, you're looking at low teens organic growth, but what would cause it to implode? And I, nothing. So if you like subscription businesses that are, are, are kind of just around to stay for a while, it seems. Like that's when you get into this, like, is there a period where that business re-rates because they can do like a JCOM for the next decade and slowly get some pricing and pricing and pricing over, over 10 years because you just don't cancel? Well, I, I think it's also, I think that's maybe what I've been waffling around with value versus growth is that there's a bit of like, 
what actually, you know, there was a guy who posted a Substack on, and I didn't read, or I think I read it once, but don't remember it perfectly, but it was something like, why stocks go up or something. And it was real. I think I took away it was basically about revenue growth, but to, it's even more, I think there's a story. And if you have a story, you know, obviously that's Elon Musk's game or whatever else. I think value investors are used to, yeah, a little bit of story, but also a lot of the numbers. And I think that tension of how much do the numbers, you know, we have followers who are growth investors who I think are quite smart, who when they talk about a stock are, um, there's almost nothing about valuation. And I get that valuation shouldn't be the first thing, but I think that sort of, where does that actually fit in? Because ultimately, as Scott said on last week's call, at some point you want the cash flows to be justified by the price you're paying for it. How do people think about that when everything is a story and is the st- narrative in case, like even with Alteryx, you're saying it's as much a question of, is this really just not a SaaS story like it thinks it is, as it was the fact that they guided well below revenue expectations and posted like 17% year over year growth. The the conundrum between how much does the valuation matter and how much does the story matter is I think that's to me what growth versus value is really all about. And, And I think the market is sort of still for all the winners that this year has produced, I think it's still in flux. I think the economy is bound to have an impact on what's going on. And also, I mean, if, if you, uh, my honest opinion on this is that like deep value investor is spending way too much time looking at the financials of the company and that the, on the, for, for, on the other end, you know, a growth, let's call them a thematic investor. Think arc invest, for example, is, is just way too obsessed with the theme. Right. And it's that balance that occurs in the middle. Like if you're really getting things wrong in, in value, you are most likely holding a business as dying because, I mean, there are, there are some dynamics, I think, in emerging markets and frontier markets and, and other things where companies are compounding decently and FX neutral growing decently that are just out of favor with flows. And that, that, that's obviously a, a broader theme in, in, in investing the last several years as, as the giants have soaked things up and tech has grown as it has. But I do think that like, you know, you, you talk Einhorn, I mean, Einhorn's just gotten a lot of things wrong. There's not much else to say. Yeah. I mean, I think about Einhorn and we had on my other podcast, we had a guy who is on Twitter now as the inquisitive investor on GM, General Motors and yeah, and that's like the auto sector has been a tough sector and GM doesn't actually produce free cash flow when you get like it was just a weird analysis to do. Look at Tesla. Tesla people have been saying that the competition is going to kill Tesla since 2010. I mean, I remember the Tesla IPO. We've talked about it. It just it hasn't happened yet. 10 years is a long time. So, if you're going to buy an electronic car today, you know, maybe you can argue we're about six months away from like, or, or almost there for that completely changing. It's just been Tesla. There's just not nothing else to say. No one has been able to effectively compete. So I think when you look at something like that, the people who have picked on it, like they've picked on it and, and, and about accounting and fraud, well, prove it. 
Like if you want, if, if like if it was about killing Elon Musk, then they, like that those attacks failed. So like we've seen Wirecard recently, which went on for forever, millions of dollars missing. NMC, Enron. When you look at these things, like you 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 got you got to pin it to them. So with the amount of turnover that there's been at Tesla. And the amount of people who've come, who've gone and left, like either there's a huge amount of people who've signed NDAs who are not sharing, who are not willing to blow the whistle on complete fraud. And like, it's not like, it doesn't seem like Elon's an easy guy to work with. So like, I would think that there's a ton of, why would you leave a company that stock price is about to shoot to the roof? There's obviously been doubters. He must be really, really, really difficult for a lot of executives to handle considering how much turnover they've had. And none of these people have come forward and been like, yo, there's shenanigans here, and I was I was forced into it. And like here, here, here you go, SEC, who he insults and makes fun of and does whatever. So, like, I think that like when you look at something like that, it's it, it's a it's a class people like there are things about Tesla which are remarkable about how high it's gone and and why it trades so much value like on a daily basis. Like, how is the stock doing the dollar amounts day, regularly that Amazon and and and, and Apple do, but it, is it like is it an example of growth versus value debate? I mean, yeah, I, I, to a degree, but competitively they've succeeded. I mean, I drove a Tesla for a weekend here, and I've been in Teslas over a dozen times over the years, different models and everything, and didn't think much of it. And when I drove one for a whole weekend during COVID, I loved it. I'm like, I'm not gonna go buy a Tesla. Uh, I'm not gonna I'll make an argument for the stock. And I have really no clue how that story ends, and I'm not really vested in it. But I, I do look at it and say, look, I mean, for this thing to lose badly, which has been the argument, it hasn't been that like, hey, it's just mediocre. It's been like, this is a zero. And supposedly, it's been almost a zero. He's told you that, right? I mean, Elon tells you like every six months, we almost died. You guys didn't know it. You know? <laughs> And I mean, just to like, just to almost rub it in for everybody who's gone after him, and that, that that's why it was a stock that went sideways for five years. So people do forget that's also a risk in this market now. So like, when when we're talking about F five or Dropbox, you know, even me with Twitter, like when things get overheated, you do, you can't take solace that like if you if you're in a business that's not going to show any sign that hasn't participated in the rally, you also may be in a business that doesn't get that screwed. It's when you're in growth. It's when you're in a growth name that didn't participate in the rally, and then when things collapse, gets punished. That's when you get really screwed. That's what you don't want to be. That's what like that. The that's the value trap. That's where you basically just made a bad investing decision. Like if wh- whether you, you like you bought New Relic at a hundred, or you bought New Nutanix, and you walk into these things, and you know, I mean, I I was in Nutanix when it was a fifty dollars stock. What is it today? Twenty, and people are getting excited about a potential takeover. It's a year later, so there are fallen angels, and there's an increasingly like I think you'll see a bigger amount of them. I, I, if you've been paying attention to what's been going on in software, we're seeing more of this, where companies are like longer sales cycle, things are going to be tougher. There's kind of holes in this. Like we got overexcited about COVID narrative in, in, in software, where like it's not. Would you rather own a home builder? Right now, maybe or someone in, on the retail side or a grocery store, you could make a case that you know after the run they've had, and with what we're hearing that it's the software space is in for uh, a rough patch, or that they got overheated. And I think that's kind of where you get this uh, 
this disconnect for some people where they struggle with it because it's like, I'm going to buy a great company. I'm going to hold it for forever. Yeah. And it seems like we're in the middle of one of those mini rotations, which we've had a couple of in this cycle and or in this 2020s alone. And we'll see if it sticks, but like Fastly is down quite a lot and is down another, it was down as much as 7% today. It's now 4%. Alteryx. Obviously. I mean, Alteryx is your classic warning sign, right? Is it an exception or is it a sign of things to come? Alteryx has given up all its gains for the year in two days. So if I'm an Alteryx investor, like I had that joke yesterday where, I'm, where I use the mean girls, like you can't sit with us, where they get upset at her after like they, want, they don't want her to bring down their reputation. And it's, I was being completely serious because like if you're a SaaS investor now, there wasn't so much problematic with Alteryx's earnings. And there was nothing in there that was really that surprising. Their tone was a little subdued, put it that way. But you want to basically be like, hey, th- this person isn't, that's not SaaS. Because the counter argument is, well, look, this is a product that people love. There's no reason that they shouldn't continue to love it. And uh, I don't see the demand picture for it changing over the long haul. And this is just near-term noise and blah, 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 blah. All right. Well, I mean, if that's if that's the case, well, how did you lose all your value? Like all your gains? And I mean, I can understand like a 10% drop, but like, how did we go from you know almost 200 back to 100? And like you were at 100 in the beginning of January, so that's where you look at these stocks and you're like, how does this happen overnight? And like, what's what's price depth in software and in this market? Why is it that like if just there's one or two days of disruption and like you know the willingness to buy, like you, you get decapitated? And that's really just the way it's been. And it's obviously going to be worse in a market that's been this strong. That's where you like you, if you look at it today, you say, is, is this a reason to hit the panic button? Is Alteric special and something just went, there's, we can very carefully explain it? Or are we going to have a list in two months that has several names that start falling into this category? Because if you, like, you can say Alteric is special, I can counter it with you and be like, look, this started with an Atlassian report. It carried over in the ServiceNow report. Fastly, you know, people were complaining that there's too much exposure to TikTok. Datadog, uh, another one, you know, overheated. And then these guys, all of a sudden you got a long list and you're calling Captain Twilio up and asking about Twilio. <laughs> I mean, I was talking the other day where after Twilio reported earnings and, and he's like, all right, we hit 400 million, which I thought was good. And this is, and he's giving me the whole, you know, the, the, his report card. And I'm like, I didn't even listen to the call. I don't care. You know, having been long at, at the last quarter, the stock was 120. We're three months later. It's 260. You and I know this company very well. Nothing has changed at that level in the last three months from my standpoint. But there's nothing that they can report that I'm going to look at and be like, oh, shit, this is actionable. And that's kind of one of the annoying things here in this market is that you've kind of made the fundamental news irrelevant. When a stock moves 200% in three months, uh, uh, unless they're going to come out and, and, and announce that they cured COVID, which is that little basket of biotechs, I'm not going to be very surprised by what you have to say. I've been joking with, with people about this obsession with, which is where there's an appeal of what you're looking at and, and talking about this rotation, where like, they're just like, I'm so amazed about how resilient uh, Amazon is and Shopify. And, and I'm like, what is that? This is their business. What do you mean? Like, stop like, like stop sitting here and, and, and like if you want to be impressed with something, 
be impressed with at home group, you know, 100,000 square foot, like trinket home seller doing delivery and curbside pickup and having a website all of a sudden that's uh, doing e-commerce, which was doing none of this four months ago. Don't be impressed that Amazon's uh, revenue screw. <laughs> so like, that's when you look at this market and you're just like, we've been talking about accelerating, accelerating, accelerating. Well, what about the acceleration of the competition that's just adapted to survive? I was joking with a, per- with, with, uh, a person about e-commerce where I'm like, is there such a thing as e-commerce anymore? Or is it just all retail again? Like if every business that we look at today from Foot Locker to uh, Williams-Sonoma, uh, which I'm long, full disclosure, to uh, Best Buy, which I've been long, full disclosure, is been operating uh, in uh, a pure digital environment. Like you think they're looking at Amazon today and be like, oh, how do they do that? How do they go 100%? Like how, how would our business look if we, our stores, uh, if everything was 100% digital? They now know. <laughs> they now know how their operations look. They now know how their supply chain looks. They now know how everything looks. So you, you force them to do that. And they all got like, like talking about that. That's like, that's something where I look at like a year from today. Am I going to be looking at Etsy and being like, oh, awesome. They sold 400 million in masks. No, I'm not. So like, that's, the, that's another thing where you could maybe make an argument that you would benefit in an F5 or a Dropbox as this enthusiasm over that something is a subscription business just by nature. It wanes in the same way that something is an e-commerce business. Like, you know, I like you can make really crude jokes about like, all I just need to do is label something with e-commerce and someone will, will just come over and take it like it's candy. That, that's been the stock market for like the last three months. Is that going to be the stock market a year from now? I don't think so. I think it's just all retail all of a sudden again. If we accelerated the future. The future became the present. The present is eventually going to become the past. Well, it's all the talk about the second wave of the coronavirus or whatever else. It feels like there's still a lot more to come in the market as far as shaking out. The one thing I was thinking about as you were saying that about the last big fundamental news, it seems to me, was Zoom's earnings report. And that was like, a, okay, they actually did shoot the lights out, etc. But yeah, I mean, at this point with what's – and I guess that, again, gets back to what we're – you're both talking about narrative shifts, but you're also talking about implicitly what a multiple is pricing in for their narrative and what all those mean and come together. And I think you're right as far as – you can't just focus on one. You can't just focus on the other. You have to kind of figure out the balance and figure out where they fit. I have started to do that with F5. I still have a lot of work to do as far as understanding the full. And they, I like the number side and I'm starting to see the story side, but definitely there are still question marks out there that need to be. Yeah, you want a leading indicator about uh, why this business is about to inflect again and enter a growth period that's above average. Like Fastly and and we can argue that Fastly and Twilio both just had, like well, last quarter when they reported, they both had metered usage pops tied to the virus. And that's like, you know, what people get really excited about. And, 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 and those were actual accelerations translating into top line revenue growth. And we've obviously seen the Amazon.com and, and Shopify and Etsy numbers where in Etsy and, and Shopify's case, you, you're talking almost triple digits. Well, I mean, Etsy did more than triple digits, but like Shopify was like high 90s. Etsy X masks was like 90. So revenue growth in a quarter, the type of stuff that people are like, wow. 
And those stocks have been running since, you know, early April on that, like day in and day out, day in and day out. So stocks tend to get in front of certain things like this. It's, it's, it's very rarely that like everyone is completely flustered. I think that COVID has created a lot of these scenarios where like you see these wild, wild moves because it's impossible to keep up. Like if you're following this and that, you're not thinking about, oh, everybody locked up at home, spent a lot of money at, at home. That was just a company that just no longer was on your radar. I think that's, you know, whether we're talking about camping and yeah, door and campers worldwide. That's because I didn't, I own it, but I owned it before COVID and I owned it because I thought they were going through their inventory correction and that they were going to go back to a upcycle and there's a secular driver there. It like, I actually sold some of my shares at 60 bucks a share, which was like right when the market was like, wait a second. We can't travel any other way. We're going to start traveling this way. And I still held on to most of them. But like, yeah, I totally lucked into, I recognized it, but I did luck into that thesis as a big winner. So yeah, updating your, and that's, we talked, we, we recorded a podcast as the correction was starting, where we were still talking about the Democratic primary to then all of a sudden things really look like they're going to hit the fan. And so then that's when you're, tr- looking at you know looking at your wallet and figuring out what what is nailed down and then you go to the cares act etc like yeah there, it's a constant you have to update I, mean, when I, I just I, I just did a note for like the first thing i've written in a while for subscribers and just like friends on like the macro picture and the stimulus and like you know trump and and what they what, what the, he he passed over the weekend and, and unemployment insurance and, and all that all that jazz and you know when you look at it like I mean let's who are we kidding I, I, if you had asked me we, when we discussed this I thought this was going to be done by summer who thought we'd still be here I thought come September well, life's back to normal I, and there was arguments that the, the that the warm weather you know when we initially were looking at this would be bad for the virus there's a lot of things and then we hit that point right around Memorial Day where Things started to like look like we, we made it past the eye of the storm. And I mean, we're kind of now in this like hybrid world, but I, I'm more in the camp that we return to the old model more than I was before. I don't think work from home is any panacea. I, like, I was watching some of the Todd McKinnon, Okta CEO, had posted like some stuff on his t- Twitter about like operations meetings that they were doing and like the, the process on, on how he's appro- how they approach it and like how exhausting it can be to do a Zoom. And it's like, you know what? It's just better to be in person. Like if you're executives, if you're management, I cannot see why you're not returning face-to-face. And it's just like, you know what? The most efficient way and productive and non-exhaustive way to do this is for all of us to be in the same room together. There's not, it's tough to get around that no matter how, uh, how much you try to virtualize it. Yeah. I, I mean, I have personal bias there because I've worked from home and I still think it's a, for a lot of people effective model. Yeah. But I, I tend to agree with you. I think you're going to see changes on the margin. Yeah, but you're not running you're... a $20 billion company is my point, right? Like, yet. like <laughs> yeah, I'm just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm saying if you were having your lieutenants underneath you and just like in terms of being productive and efficient, I think it's just going to be a little bit easier for you. I, there's obviously advantages to what you can do with these tools, but I do think that this there's a psychological element around work 
And look, if someone who's been trading and doing financial markets yeah, and on his own for since 2011, like I can sit and tell you that, that like, yes, I, I get how this works for, for certain fields fantastically and it's gotten better. But there's just some where I just don't see it, where I just think that we snap back. I do think that there's going to be pent up demand on the travel side. I do think that I, I, I think if you're looking at writing the press releases a year from today, nobody's going to be excited about e-commerce next year. Like we won't be like, oh, I wish I had these e-commerce companies in my portfolio. I also do think we're like we're at a euphoric standpoint in terms of like, you know, anything can be accomplished in investing mentality, like spending a lot of time on Twitter. There's some stuff that's amazing. And it is like you, you'll read something and you're you're super impressed. And then you're like, wow, this person's, you know, 18 years old. <laughs> and you're like, that's amazing. But then you're also like, all right, but he's also 18 years old. There's an element of that on both ends. There's a start where the, there's the part where you're like, that's amazing. Then there's the part where you're like, everyone just kind of thinks that they're going to be rich investors investing in tech and software. And like, it's just done. It's been hand, it's, you know, it's, it's been, it's been entitled to them and it'll be willed and there'll be an army of Captain Twilio's. I just don't see it. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, like, I, I, like I, I look back and I read that, that 1967 with Liam Lewin, that 23 year old tycoon who, by the way, ended up being a very successful guy. And, just like how like how he's doing it, how he conquered the markets, you know, and like it's just like I saw people punching time cards and saw the optical scanner come out and I knew that that was gonna be big. Every company he invested in was bankrupt within like three years. Like they were just gone. Now, that's not the case with a lot of what we're talking about today, but the, the case of I'm not forty five years old, I'm twenty three and I can see the future, you know, that element and like you're a guru. Like I had a run-in with one of these SaaS gurus this week, you know, this uh, Puru or whatever, you know, on Twitter, where the guy has done like, you know, he's, he's got a huge following of people who invest in SaaS, more power to him. He tweets regularly. He's been giving great calls and advice. And he's laid out this view of buy till you die, right? Hold till you die. Good businesses, don't try to time the market because you can't. It's not the first time we've heard this, this argument, right? How many great investors will tell you market timing is impossible, stocks for the long run, and so on and so forth. Buy good companies at reasonable GARP, you know, growth at reasonable price, invest, hold, diversify, etc. And he's been, he's been saying all that, and particularly with just a focus on SaaS. I now, I mean, I, I see his, twi- his tweets, I see everyone following him. I've not learned one thing about a single SaaS company, not a single point detail about anything written there, which is like, there are kids on there giving more advice. But what I do see is, you know, someone who's actually been trading the market great and making, he's timing things good. And like, is is a financial guru to people who are trading, telling them not to trade. And he comes out with a call last week, right around, I mean, like as the SaaS stocks start falling. Of like I'm I'm selling these names. I'm getting out of Fastly and whatever because I've just made too much money since April. It's surreal, and it's I know this is not what I advise you to do, but like I'm I'm going to do it anyway. So like I've just like literally just made a joke like it's whatever happened to SaaS till I die, and you know what's next shorting, boom, attacked, <laughs> you know, where and it's like come on man, it's just like hey where where. Give you know tongue in cheek, you know you you make a trading call, it's fine. But like if you're gonna get on and preach it like it's a religion, don't trade, and then and don't time, and then make a timing call. Okay, we're gonna come out and say like you know what, 
maybe you shouldn't be preaching and maybe that this like this dynamic of this market is 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 hard to gauge and it's been so volatile because it's just it's been so fluid and we we really we really struggled with where things are going to be and that's human behavior and when you see that it's it's alarming and that's like the psychology element of it you know for me where i watch it and like everyone just thinks you know podcast we have a podcast you know but put it that way right like <laughs> everyone thinks podcasting is like you know you know twitter university podcast university you know you can sit in i was reading the atlantic article on, on what's the deal with masterclass that you posted like at what point will will there be like a an app to follow a person where i can see what like i can see what dorsey's doing for exercise in the morning what he's eating uh, what he's investing in like are you just going to productize a person's life as something that that can be followed so that's when you get to that point where you're like hey this has happened before everyone wants to be like that guy and i've seen manias and i've seen people think that like all i got to do is like this whole like, hey, the experts aren't the experts anymore. And like, I have no problem with that argument that, that, that information has democratized everything and you can invest like the best by just listening to them. This is the whole concept behind uh, conferences. Whenever there's a mania, the conference business blows up because everybody wants to show up and meet the people involved and learn how they're doing it. And it's also the same place that the grifters and, and, and hustlers show up to fleece you. It's no different. Uh, like, will we hit? A, like, I remember what it was like in 2000. I don't like the enthusiasm and like the fact that like you, you could just buy like a Qualcomm and a Nortel and you would never work again and like you would live off of this and like wealth supreme. But the but the reality is that doesn't happen. And then it'll be a phase when nobody's interested in these stocks. That's where you get into this whole IPO debate. It's like. Someone's got to sell the stocks when you talk about direct listings and SPACs and you're skipping steps. And like people are like, this, the, the IPO is archaic. It's from a dinosaur era. The, the direct listings rules and SPACs are next and it's more efficient. It's like, all right, you know what's great about a SPAC? I don't have the SEC ask me questions. I, I'm a promoter. I'm a promoter. And I say, you know what? Pay a premium for me because I'm the next Warren Buffett, whether I'm the goat of great of, of Bill Ackman or, or Shamath Palpatia. And like, before I've even bought something, it's implied that I'm created value. That's a bad sign, okay? I mean, that used to be the stuff that you say, hey, bubble, that people are, are, are paying premiums to cash. I, I mean, like, this is a joke that I got into in 2010 with a stock in, in the frontier markets where it was just like, hey, you're paying a premium to cash. Well, why? Well, because this sovereign invested. Okay, well, like, have they created value already? No, but the, their presence will provide access to amazing things. It's like it's not like people haven't always been thinking this way. This happens at the end, and then it's like you know what? They're going to buy an underlying asset, and the person selling that underlying asset has to be a freaking fool to give it away at a discount. When like the IPO process has a reason for doing that, we price here to a pop, so you get discovery, so you have a higher price, so momentum investors buy in, and then by the time we're exiting the lockup. We've created this level of demand that you are exiting into. And you're going to beat these numbers by the next quarter and you're going to guide up. And like it's orchestrated. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a dance. And you want to replace that with direct listing. Everybody can sell the first day. Well, if, no, if the thing doesn't pop and you do four or five of those in a row, who, who's going to be interested in whatever's direct listing next? Yeah, I mean, it is funny. The direct listings that have happened have not been successful. If you're just talking about optimizing 
share. Of course they're not because they're, it, 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 the idea is to be efficiently priced on day one. You're not, you're, you're not controlling supply. You're not trying to boost demand. You're not trying to suck in retail. These are not like, these are all elements of the business of going public. Otherwise, sell the business or don't go public. Wait till another point to sell. There's every investment decision has two sides, buy and then sell. When you sell, it's because you either think it's not going to go up anymore or you think it's going to go down. You don't sell something that you think is going to go up a lot. So anybody who's selling has developed that view at a time that there's reasons, there's arguments, but like for VCs, for example, they can't own a business. That's why you're seeing these things like they don't make their money till they distribute to their LPs or till the whole business is sold. They can't just hold it and take dividends. That's not what they're doing. Like, and that's been a criticism from Jason Fried with Basecamp. And like, that's why you're seeing these micro VCs and, and things like portfolios of small internet businesses and people who buy these and just hold them and like, you know, mini Berkshire Hathaways for the internet. And that's a flip side uh, of the model. So I don't think that there's a problem with raising money anymore. Like information is so available. And we're just talking about how like easy it is to get out there and fish around and see who does what and talk to them and ask them questions about what they use and replicate that. So that's not the that's not the issue. So when people start talking about these things, like it's disruption, that's late cycle warning signs. And like that's that's when you're like, you know, when when the argument is I'm willing to pay a premium because Ackman is a value creator. All right. Would you have said that 18 months ago when the guy thought Herbalife was going to do this and uh, Valiant was going to do that? that. Yeah. Like he missed that $100 billion fiasco. And it, like he missed it even as people drove things through his way. Yes, he's had an amazing run recently. That's the whole point. But is he a, is he a magic value creator? Is he a magician? And like, the, the one thing you, you can take away from doing this long enough is that there isn't. Like no matter how good you think you are, you eventually feel you're stupid. Uh, and it can happen repeatedly after like years of experience. And it's one of the few industries where that happens. Like you're not, if you're going to be like a legal legend or amazing doctor, like I, I think it's very rare that like at, at your peak knowledge of your career that you're going to feel like an amateur. But I think that happens very regularly in the investment business. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's that's what makes it a different sort of business, right? I mean, because there is that whole reflexivity because there's so many other people in there. Because I saw somebody tweeted out a good point. You know, I, I don't know who he was referring to, but some people were dunking on a guy who had a bad six months to start the year. Big fund manager, one sort or the other, and it's just like. Unless the guy was being a jerk, he doesn't deserve it. Everybody has a bad six months, and even in this time, you're gonna, it's possible. And that's just the name of the game. It's it really, you know, it's the same thing as hitting a baseball. Everybody goes through. Exactly. So that's why you have to worry about cult figures. So like when you when when you make a joke about someone who says uh, to someone who says buy and hold forever, and then a week later is like I'm exiting everything. <laughs> that's and and that leads to an onslaught. That's a warning sign because that's, that tells you animal spirits have gotten out of control. Once you start thinking that there's well, – once you start treating people like gurus in the investment world, you have a problem. 100% agree. All right. I think we should wrap, but to start – go back to where we started, I don't think I've sold you on F5 yet, but I have some homework as far as where to go with that. And I thought it was fun to kind of start from a different – 
vantage point for this episode. And meanwhile, I hope that it's a relatively safe place to hide out as whatever happens with the market shakes out over the, like I said, I think we're as wild a run as it's been. I, I think there's still more fun to happen in the rest of the year. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to be, a, uh, I mean, it, you looked at the mess between the heroes and what's the other one? The Republicans calling it the heels, heroes and heels act, and what the president's proposing. And these sides are so far apart that you're, the hangover from a stimulus standpoint is very real. And I and like Trump's throwing out stuff that just like you know capital gains tax that he can't do. It's the whole point. You can't do it till after like you can't agree on 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 the unemployment insurance. And you're going to talk about capital gains and income ta- tax cuts. So he's essentially making these promises. He's like, we're going to be looking at this, and you're going to be hearing exciting stuff about this. Exciting. Well, are you going to be president past November? So there's a lot of we're entering into this this sprint right now as we get to the election, where these things are going to have to start mattering again. And this, like, whatever this vacation was that you know has been this uh, astounding COVID rally, is going to be shifting into some sort of reality check. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Good stuff, Akram. Thank you for hearing me out on my pitch. And uh, No problem, bro. That was a good pitch. I like it. You need to plug the – you need to tie it together with the broad stroke. What's the secular theme? Yep. Nope. Totally, totally agree. All right. And let's – we're going to do this again soon. Good stuff. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, disagreements, or anything else. We will be publishing at least one episode every other week for the summer before we ramp up in the fall and love to hear from you with ideas. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd also be really grateful. This has been a Shortman Studios production. And our theme song is Move On by SoCal. Thanks for listening and see you next time.